This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by Mook Delivery, bringing you the food you love. Mook Delivery, like McKenna, brings a top-tier lineup. With Leaf Davis-esque delivery right to your door, you'll always be winning with Mook Delivery. So the only thing left to say is, you win. Order now on the McDonald's app. And you can also get rewards points delivered too, so that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only by app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to part two of the Blue Monday Jim Magilton special. A huge, huge thanks to my guests for coming on the show again. It's day 20 of lockdown. How are things in the Magilton household? Hanging in there. Uh, still doing whatever you have to do. Listening to government advice. Still trying to get out. Uh, but self-isolating. Still trying to stay safe. Trying to stay uh, positive in everything we do. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's. Uh, do you know what? I, I was thinking about this and I think... Like my background, I think, has helped me enormously in this because when you're a professional footballer, you kind of get used to being in this sort of cocoon, this sort of isolation. So all the prep that went into being a, a footballer certainly helped me now. So, uh, yeah, dealing with it and staying positive. I saw you posted a video of you doing um, a thousand keep the uppies in your, in your <laughs> slippers. And the question that we're all asking was, was that done in one take or did you just get someone one to take. count the number? One take, Sean. You know I don't know. There's not a degree of dishonesty about me. Let's just say I got the 990 very quickly. I got the last <laughs> 10 very quickly. <laughs> you still got it. You're still... I was wearing my socks. So, oh. uh, no, listen, I have, my two nephews are very challenging. They're very competitive. No idea where they get it from. Uh, so we had a bit of a challenge that day. And, yeah, they had to eat humble pie. Yes, again. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, I, I, might challenge, I might challenge myself to go out and do that at some point and just record the last three. 998, <laughs> 999. Um, we hope town fans would have been pleased with, with part one, and, and they really, really were. It was um, you know, our most watched uh, video on our, on our channel. Um, loads of comments. Tell us about some of the feedback that, that you received from, from the interview. Yeah, really positive. I'd say you know, very generous, very complimentary, uh, very honest uh, from most if not all uh again it was it was fantastic to go back uh and recall those great memories you know when you asked me to do it i kind of wanted to do it off the cuff i didn't really want to research anything i didn't want to delve back i wanted to uh, react in a very honest way and tell you exactly how i felt going into that uh, as i say there was an article in um those were the days that actually struck home to me and it was written very beautifully, and I wanted, to, and and it kind of reflected how I felt on that night. But when you brought me back to the games, and you know, and the, and the players, it, it just evoked so many fantastic memories with, you know, a crowd that was so passionate and so desperate to, to to finally get over the line. From from a fan's point of view, I was I was amazed that that your level of detail and the and the memory that you, that you had it was fantastic. I went back and watched the the playoff semi final and the highlights again, and I was thinking. 
this is exactly how Jim said it. So well played. Well played for that. Yeah, I think a lot of professional footballers do have that sort of memory because they're all selfies buggers because they only think about themselves, you know, so they think about themselves in the in the times that they do well, you know. So, uh, no, listen, I, I've always had that sort of attention to detail and hopefully down the line, if you and I continue these talks, you'll find that when, you know, I stepped into the management side of things and I, t- I touched upon it uh, only slightly, uh, but definitely it's part of, you know, my makeup and um, and I'm a bit OCD like that. There, there was one bit of feedback that stood out for me, and I'm just reading it now, and it said, um, I really like the guy who asked the questions. Very good. Well done, yeah. Sean. I so like the guy too. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Mum, for that. Um, so let's, let's go. Part one took us from your time at, at Sheffield Wednesday, and then we went to Playoff Glory at Wembley in May 2000. We pick up the story the, the day after. You're standing on the balcony of the town hall. Um, thousands of town fans are lining the streets. Tell us about the parade and celebrations that day. Well, take it back a little bit, back to that morning. I actually woke up with uh, my family, uh, my father, my brother, my two brother-in-laws, and my, and my best mate. And they'd kind of like taken over the Magilton household uh, for that time. They were season ticket holders at the Gulf. Uh, and, uh, and that morning, it was a beautiful morning, and I remember it was just waking up, breakfast was on, and we were sitting there, oblivious to, you know, just trying to relive the night before, the whole uh, going back to the showgrounds and me confiscating the mic and taking over the mic. Lo and behold, shock horror. And, you know, reliving that. And then re- realising they're going to be late for their flight. And we forgot all about that. And also, I got a late call saying, Jim, where are you? We're about to go on the bus. And I went, what are you all talking about? No, no, the parade. And I went, what parade? Yeah, we talked about it. And I, So I, I had to go through the crowds at breakneck speed to get to the parade. So John Kerr met me and he went, still celebrating Mr. Magilton? And I went, Mr. Kerr, you know, I wouldn't touch a drop. So yeah, then getting onto the bus and seeing the boys again and families and just this year, elation, you know, and the emotion. I think it was the emotional outpouring of four or five years of you know agony to get where we got and listen the crack on the bus was unbelievable i think there was a few sherbets taken that night on the bus and then standing on the balcony seeing the thousands that turned out bear in mind the thousands that did turned out on the saturday or sorry the when was it monday so on the tuesday so like it was incredible it was an incredible show of affection for the players and and the players wanted to reciprocate that to the fans so it was an incredible evening that that, like i said personally is is, is a bittersweet uh memory for me because i wasn't there but what i can say is that two uh on the saturday of that weekend that's where my wedding reception was very good sir there you go so the the most important day didn't you (laughs) well yes true exactly so the celebrations have, have stopped everything's calmed down what did you do personally to you know, get yourself ready for the Premier League. You've been away for a, a season and a, and a half as such. Yeah. Uh, I had another couple of weeks of celebrating uh, with family and relaxing because it had been a, a, a huge emotional season and there was a realisation of, wow, we're back in the Premier League. Uh, anticipation of fixtures uh, was always uh, pretty intense, uh, no matter what level you play at. So I was looking forward to that. 
Then I refocused and then I got myself fit. I started training within two, three weeks, really focused on going back into the Premier League, knowing the standards you had to attain, knowing the physical fitness, the physical uh, condition you had to be in. So right away, I just was really focused and really looking forward to pre-season. So what was your fitness regime back then? I guess it was a bit more than you know wearing a pair of socks and a thousand keepy-uppies. What, what would you have to do? I would have then scheduled uh, run in the morning, uh, physical conditioning in the morning, uh, a little bit of uh, weights in the afternoon. I would probably have done two or three sessions a day and, uh, and then been entertained by two fanatical boys who were just football daft, so it was easy for me. But once I got them settled, I'd go out for another physical uh, and run. I used to enjoy getting away and getting my head clear. Uh, actually used to enjoy it immensely. So two or three sessions a day, just totally focused on, uh, on, on the new season. And then a little bit of ball work uh, with the boys and, and taking myself away and, and really concentrating on myself and getting myself ready. What did you, what did you remember when the fixture list came out? Oh, sleepless nights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the opening fixtures were going to be tough. Uh, but then once you get over that shock, it's uh, I always talk to players and I talk about being motivated, inspiring, rather than demotivated and intimidated. So once you get over that, Alan Ball had this great thing. He used to come in with a team sheet and he'd rip it up and he'd say, names on a piece of paper, that's all they are. And you go, yeah, yeah, but you're not playing against them. I am. So, so, but it kind of way worked with me. And he was right because on any given day, over 90 minutes, it's, it's possible to win games. Of course it is. That's the nature of the game. So once I, <coughs> excuse me, once I got uh, my head around the opening fixtures, obviously I was totally focused on getting myself fit and totally focused on getting into the team because a new competition had heightened and a new competition was going to be stiff. And I had to earn the right. So over three seasons, George Burley had built built this team, uh, bringing on youngsters like Wrighty and Scoey, but then also selling off Sedgley, Vaughan, Tarico, and then every season from ninety seven, ninety eight onwards, he he was adding a, a couple of hungry players, including yourself in ninety eight, ninety nine. We talked about uh, Jammer, John McGreal, Gary Croft, and and Stuart joining. Summer two thousand recruitment comes along, and we spend four and a half million on Herman. Martin Royster joins permanently, and we also get John Scales on a free. Did you think it was the right time to carry on this little by little approach, or was there a worry that we perhaps needed more quality there? A bit of both, but I have to say, George's recruitment at that during that spell was top notch. Every player he brought in were footballers, and they all could handle the ball. Strategically, he picked a team that uh, was very much possession based. And again, around solid foundations. So he's bringing in experience, good defenders, and also uh, with the right attitude. I think he selected players on attitude. There was that desperation and hunger. And then there was the seasoned pros who were desperate and hungry, who maybe have had a little lull in their career. So his recruitment in terms of that, I thought was top notch. So the added additions just uh, put extra pressure on the group, which is always needed. Uh, I remember bumping into Herman. Herman tells a story about bumping into me. I remember saying to him, uh, price tag, yeah, you're going to have to be some player to get in this team. And don't worry, don't let the price tag overwhelm you. We'll soon let you know if you're a footballer or not. So, so Kenway, that was... But, but the Kenway, the integration into the group 
was always very important. I have to say, there were a brilliant bunch of lads for that. They, they got them in. And again, you had to find out. Training was always about being intense and being ready and focused and game-related. So these guys knew that once they came into the training, I think if you asked all the new signings, it was the level and consistency of the training that really pushed them on. So I'd like to think that we all played a part in that. So straight away to our first home game, we're against Manchester United. Um, going back to the, your analogy about bits of paper, you know, they're just names on a bit of paper on the mm. floor. Um, tell us about you know, your role as a central midfielder up against Roy Keane and, and Paul Scholes. Knew it was going to be a pretty tough night. <laughs> knew it was, you know, I knew the quality they had. Again, my going into that game, I just it was early season, second game. I knew Liverpool, Liverpool God forgive me, uh, Manchester United were going to give us the opportunity to play, and if we couldn't play, they were going to squeeze the living daylights out of us, and they were going to press us. But if we could prove we could play, then they would have that respect, and. Ultimately, that's what happened. I was very focused for the game. I enjoyed the game, the build-up of that game, as much as I enjoyed the semi-final. Probably even more, because I knew who I was playing against. I knew the levels, and, and that was no disrespect to Bolton at all, but I knew the levels. I knew on the night, if I wasn't at it, as they say, if I wasn't focused, then they could, they could really hurt you, because they were top class, brilliant. They were brilliant on the night. But so were we. We were as equally as good, and that was very pleasing. One of, definitely one of my favourite nights. And, you know, like you say about Manchester United, they had Bartes, Stam, the Neville brothers, Beckham, Molly Gunnar, Solskjaer, uh, York, Giggs. Yeah. But obviously, t- tell us about the moment when, when Fabian uh, scores. To put yeah, one well, if, if, you, if you remember the goal, the goal's an unbelievable goal. The build-up play is fabulous. John, who has great awareness, flips him in. If his pass isn't right, and we talk about that in quality, and the, you know his pass was superb. Fabian was uh, so athletic and was uh, you know so on top of his game. Fantastic finish, and I remember again the noise. The noise echoed everything from that night, that semi-final night. It just came away. Oh, here we go again. Oh my goodness, hers on the back of the night. Now ways up. You know, we've just scored against, we've just shaken the beast here. Now we need to refocus. Now we need to get back to, you know, concentration. But listen, as I said to you a million times, when a goal goes in, every every sense and sensibility goes out the window. Fabian celebrates as only Fabian can, of course. You know, gorgeous, give himself a little kiss. So uh, so it was great. It was, it was absolutely brilliant and... It was just reward for how we played and great goal. But again, refocus. Let's get back into the in the into the here and now. So uh, United equalised from a David Beckham free kick. Uh, you know, as from from a from a fan sitting in the stand, you know, is nobody goes for it. You know, you, you look at Richard Wright. You know, at the last minute, is he un, unsighted by by the free kick? Yeah, potentially. I'm not having that though. Should should have saved it. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Listen. Uh, you know, we're talking about we're talking about genius here. You know, we're talking about top top players. So potentially, yes. Uh, I have this thing about goalkeepers. I do. I just you know they they're protected in so many different ways. Uh, but no, listen, it was top quality. And when you're dealing with top quality, that's why I, I kind of I always knew I wasn't I wasn't intimidated by any squad. I wasn't intimidated by uh, the physical aspect of the game with any team. My nervousness came with dealing with that quality 
no matter how well we played, every team in the in the in the division, every team in that level had players that were going to hurt you. And Manchester United had an abundance. That's why they were Manchester United winning Premier League titles. So I was always conscious of that. I knew in one second of the game it could change in their favour. So yeah, it was just another moment. But I, I just thought on the night we were very good, very good, and deserved deserved something from the game. Do you remember that guy who tried to lob Bartes from the halfway line when it was one one? Yeah. Do you know? Do you know what? I just it came to me and instinctively I knew Bartes. He was a jack in the box. He couldn't stand still. I just had a gamble. It was that little half a look. And as it came to me, it said, "Do you know what? I kind of stretched. I didn't get full full uh, timing, you know, and it was just slightly off because uh, I would have chipped them. Uh, but uh, no, listen, it was just instinctive. I had a little look." And I thought, right, he'll, he'll be busy enough to be in the round. He'll have me on his lane. He'll be in that in his six-yard box. I'm going to take half a punt here. So Steve McLaren was the assistant manager with uh, Sir Alex. And after the game, we because I played with him at uh, Oxford United, he was like, only you. Only you. You know what I mean? We have a fella that did it. And I knew McGilton might do something on the night. But he was very complimentary uh, about my performance, which was great, but also the, the team's performance, which was even better. So, Sir Alex Ferguson obviously made comments about the town fans. He said that he felt that there were like 40,000 people in the in the <laughs> stadium. Do you think, obviously, that Portman Road was going through a development stage, certainly the period that we're cover, covering now. Do you think it's yeah. better to have how we used to be, you know, the, the single stands behind the goal with fans packed in or, or a bigger stadium, but perhaps, you know, a few more empty seats as such? Actually, you know what? It's, a, it's, it's development, isn't it? The, the game's going to that sort of level. I just like noise. I love noise. Do you know, I like fans being passionate. Listen, they can be passionate the other way, which can't, which sometimes doesn't help you. But it kind of comes down to the individual dealing with that. I just like the noise. I like, you know, that closeness of, of Portman Road too. Uh, but listen, it is what it is. The game's developing all the time. The new stadia uh, around the world. You can't, you know, you can't complain there. It's absolutely out of this world. It's so, you know, the, the comfort now watching games of football. But... A personal choice, yeah, I love that. I love being on top of it, and so did so did the the um, Manchester United players. You know, they're used to it every week. They have to deal with that pressure every week, both at home and away. You know, I was at Southampton when they opened the stand, uh, the new stand, the new tier at Old Trafford, which took it to seventy-five thousand. Lots of noise. Was there a difference between I don't know sixty-five to seventy-five? Only they can tell you. But certainly on the on the night, it was fabulous. So more noise, the better for me. In the next game, we're at home at Sunderland and Titus Bramble scores a, a rampaging solo goal from, he, from his own half. Can you talk to us about Bramble's huge potential? He was 18 years old then and, and what your role as, as a senior pro was in, in giving him advice and, and mentoring him? Yeah, keeping grounded more than anything. Just keep educating himself in the game. Keep watching himself in the game. I think Titus had a great career. I think he could have had an even better career. The thing about Titus, and it wasn't his fault because, again, the old laddie job if you're young enough, you're good enough, get him in, you know, or sorry, if you're good enough, you're young enough, it doesn't matter what age. So, anyway, I did that with Conor Wickham, get him in, let's see how he goes. But certainly, his development, his development, overall development, didn't take place to a large extent because, because of his great ability to go straight into the senior game. So, he lost a lot of that development, uh, learning from mistakes, playing in the youth team. So he didn't. He bypassed all that. Even playing in the reserves, he bypassed that education. So he went. Straight, so he was learning on the job. He was making mistakes on the job against the best players. Let's be honest. 
he's dealing with the best players, maybe across Europe, maybe in the world, the bear camps, the Terry Henry's. So he's learning on him. So for a young player, it was a huge education. But in all honesty, you know, we probably should have done more with him in terms of like his own personal development, watching games, learning from your mistakes, learning from your mistakes. But he was that good. So it was very difficult because what he lacked in probably his positional play, he made up for pace. And his technical ability was such that, you know, people were making reference to uh, Beatty and people like that. Like, that's another level. But, you know, he tackled like a train. His timing was always pretty immaculate. But he, he just got lost at times. So positionally, he got lost simply because of the fantastic movement of the opposition and the opposition central strikers. So he was under pressure a lot. But in terms of him as a boy, I loved him. He lived close by. He, 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 he got it quite regularly from me. He understood exactly the levels. And he, was, he, had, he had a tremendous attitude. And that's what I always liked about him. He played for the youth team, and he, I watched him several times. And he played as a, a centre forward. Do you think he how his career would have progressed if he just stayed up front? Oh, I don't know. He was a battering ram more than anything, I would imagine, and because of his pace. But what he had was fabulous uh, two foot, two feet, uh, both feet. You couldn't tell the difference with him. He could he could ping it with both feet, and that was an attribute that uh, because he played left left side. McGrain probably played right side or wherever else or whatever makeup of the side we had. He kind of like fitted in left-hand side, which meant that he had this unbelievable self-confidence. He did have this unbelievable... So it didn't matter which side he came to, he just passed it. And he got a few rolligans from me. If it goes over my head again, you'll be following it. Pass it to me. So kind of like trying to educate him in the game in terms of positional play was one of my roles in the team. But also he had great uh, knowledge and experience around him. So the first half of the season is incredible. You start all 19 matches. There are 10 victories. We beat Leeds away. We beat Liverpool away. We mentioned the draw with Manchester United and we draw with Arsenal. Marcus Stewart has already got 10 goals. The team is third at the halfway point of the season. What do you think was the secret to the brilliant start? Were you surprised? And, and how did you personally find the step back up after a couple of seasons away? Listen, you were always surprised. It was a lovely, beautiful unexpected surprise to be third in the in the Premier League but as I again spoke about in the last one was about the quality of the player that had been brought in and that again is you know uh, credit to George and his recruitment I didn't have a problem with the ball there was never going to be a problem I felt technically we had good footballers better than good footballers very good footballers technically we were aware of our roles and responsibilities within the team. Everybody was absolutely very clear on their role within the team. And that was to get me the ball. They were very clear, very clear uh, with their responsibilities, both with it and without the ball. So we set up really well. We were set up really well. Again, you were always conscious of the opposition's quality. And could we dominate the ball enough? Could we dominate possession enough? Could we actually dominate the opposition with our formation, regardless of how well they had or they were set up, could we dominate? And for half a season, we did it so, so well. We were set up beautifully. We had adaptability in our group. Herman could shift back into left side centre half. He was equally uh, comfortable playing up and down the left-hand side as a wing-back or setting in as a left-back. You know, we had adaptability in the team. We could change from a system to a system. Again, that was 
huge credit to the coaching staff for recognizing that at times in games we were under pressure. We were under we had to defend, and what we did do we defended really well uh, to a man. Our work ethic in the team was tremendous, absolutely tremendous. So there was, you know, that our attitude and application to the job was top class. In December, we added Alan Armstrong from Middlesbrough, um, which in no small part led to uh, David Johnson's three million pound transfer out of the Premier League to Forest, which. You know, it seems a touch ruthless given all of the hard work and the effort that Jono had given to the team over the previous seasons. Do you, how do you feel about a teammate being replaced in such a way? And was the ruthlessness possibly a positive trait that Ipswich had kind of been missing in the past? Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Whether you want to protect yourself whilst online or just get access to more streaming content, NordVPN has the solution for you. And are now in partnership with us here at Blue Monday. NordVPN can be your cyber bodyguard whilst you're browsing online, but it also allows you to access more streaming content from abroad like sporting events, box sets or films. With one click of a button, NordVPN can digitally transport you to the US, Australia or Amsterdam. For the price of an ITFC match programme each month, you can subscribe to NordVPN and have access to these great services. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, head to nordvpn.com slash bluemonday or click the link in the podcast description. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, so get yourself a great deal and support the podcast in the process. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like home comforts. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home advantage with McDelivery. You win. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. First and foremost, John, John O'Gowan was was a surprise too, uh, but also, you know, uh, right away, players go, that's part and parcel again. Who were we going to replace him with was, was my thing too, you know, because what John o had was blinding pace. And the worst thing for a defender is dealing with that. John played on people's shoulders. He made defenders face their own goal. He made defenders have to think about his position constantly. So he was an absolute pain in the backside for any defender. He was an absolute nuisance. So losing that aspect, blinding pace, was a huge, was was played hugely on my mind because I'm thinking, well, we're not blessed with, you know, real pace uh, given the other qualities that the other centre forwards had. Uh, so that was a concern. At the end of the day, uh, it was a club decision. Jono uh, obviously... Uh, went bringing Alan. I, I played against Alan Armstrong, funny enough, for Southampton when he played for Stockport, and and they beat us in the quarterfinal, I think, of the uh, the League Cup. And by the way, I saw this guy who had pace, now, not the same sort, but had pace, was 
physically uh, able to adapt uh, to the Premier League and also was a good finisher. Alan Armstrong was a really good finisher and you saw that the moment he came in to train. So Alan Armstrong was again another very good business and recruitment for George and for the, the, uh, the scouting team. So John was a loss. I was upset when John went because again, his massive contribution to the club is fantastic goal ratio for the club and someone else was going to benefit from that. So uh, losing John was a blow, but getting Al in, once you got to know Al, not a problem. So at the start of the new year, four league defeats in five is our, our worst run of the season. But then it's followed by another incredible run of eight wins out of in 10 games. Liverpool eventually take third place with a run of seven wins and a draw in their last eight games. But we go into the last game of the season, uh, just a point behind the Reds um, away at Derby. What are your memories of, of that run in? And, and was a third place Champion League spot, was it, was it discussed? Was it targeted at any point? It was discussed. It was spoken about. It was spoken about. Liverpool went to charge in the last game of the season. I think Robbie Fowler scored a hat trick or something along those lines. Uh, of course, it was discussed. But you know what? It was kind of way. It, it wasn't dismissed by any stretch of imagination. We just had to go and do our business at Derby. Uh, it was just. It was. It was again a, this incredible, incredible feeling. It was carried on from the previous season. There was this confidence in the group. Even when we were we lost the four games, it was back to basics consistency consistency let's work harder without putting too much pressure on each other pressure was part and parcel of the game it was part of parcel of training but it was keep doing what we're doing because we have got good players get back to basics keep believing in yourselves it'll come good thus the run then getting into that last game it was whatever happened happened it was a tough game derby away uh, and uh, listen you're sitting in that change room at the end of the season, and you're just, you can't believe what's happened. Well, to the outsiders, you can't believe what happened. But if you look at the players, and you think about the work that was put into the players, you think of all the work that the players had done that season, and the way they applied themselves, their attitude, their enthusiasm, all the words that we used, listen, they deserved it. We all deserved it. And you as fans deserved it. You loved it. You got the, you got to go the, the away games. You enjoyed massive success. Listen, everybody, they'll tell you're an absolute liar if you don't say, if you don't for one second think you're not listening to this or you're not listening to that. You know, when you know, you as fans, you're traveling the away games and people are talking you up, they're actually praising the way you play, they're praising your players. Listen, that we all have an immense feeling of pride, you know, pride as an individual, but pride as a, as a group of players and then pride as a club. People are talking about your football club in a manner which. You know, it's fabulous. It's fantastic. I think um, I speak on behalf of all fans by saying that you made us very, very proud that that season. And, uh, you know, fifth place finish, George Burley's manager of the year. Um, you started 32 of those uh, 38 league games. Where does this season rank in your in your playing career? Oh, I would say it's up to probably the best, the best consistency ways. Uh, I, had, I had great times at Southampton. I didn't miss many games. But... Southampton was centred around an absolute genius, which was 100%. And, uh, and we had to do everything to stay in the division. And ultimately, you know, when we look at the next season, that's what probably cost us. But for four or five seasons, it was about, you know, uh, maintaining Premier League status and making sure that we got the ball to Tiz at every opportunity. 
<laughs> so so when I when I got into this group of players, I just it was a sense of worth, a sense of value, a major contribution into how I wanted the game to be played, and and, and in particular how we all uh, wanted to play and how we all adapted to Premier League life very quickly. The readjustment for me was easier because I had experienced it. Uh, I was a full international having experienced games. But for there was immense pride too for a lot of those lads who probably going in would have doubted themselves. And they're never sure. Now they can all talk about self-belief. But once you put yourself under the cost or put yourself under pressure and once you cross that white line, it's over to you. And I think they they all should take immense pride in how they played and conducted themselves throughout. So it was a lot of pleasure. Um, in the close season, three off the pitch uh, decisions kind of uh, still question to, to today in relation to the impact that they had on 2001-2. Um, Firstly, and I'm interested, you know, are, are they ringing any alarm bells? And, and, you know, I'm interested in your view about changes and how they were happening. So let's pick the first one. The little by little recruitment that we spoke about before with, you know, bringing in hungry players and stuff. Um, that changed. It was, it was overhauled and in come a, a flurry of players, including Matteo Sereni, four and a half million. Fanidi George came in at 3.1 million. Um, on top of that, you had your homegrown players of, of Richard Wright and James Scowcroft are then going off to your, your Premier League rivals. And obviously, we then talk about the, the demolition of the, the North Stand and the impact like that. Did any of that ring any alarm bells at any point? No, not really. You know, because simply because you couldn't, you couldn't object or you couldn't criticise George's recruitment up to that point. In fact, all of them had come and established themselves and actually being made major contributions. So, Matteo Serini coming in to replace Reddy was always going to be a massive call. So, obviously, they had done their homework. So, you can't, you don't know that until you actually step over the line again and you, and you put them into that situation. Finiti came with unbelievable pedigree. Now, whether or not Finiti had gone uh, is another story, but uh, both Matteo and Finiti fitted in. Matteo was a little bit different, maybe slightly more aloof, but actually, d- deep down, he was a good lad. And I, Subsequently, I played with, you know, Italians uh, in Paolo and Benito Carboni, Paolo Ducanio at Sheffield Wednesday, and I got on super with them. So, uh, so no, not really. I think Reddy and Reddy going to Arsenal was not a surprise, you know. And it was a, and let's be honest, you cannot step stop a player from going uh, to that caliber of club. So that wasn't a big surprise. Scorey was more of a surprise, I have to say. Uh, had a really good professional working relationship with Scoey and I really liked Scoey but I think that comes down to personal choices too I think Scoey uh, perhaps felt that he needed to go he'd been a homegrown player he'd been at the club such a long time perhaps that had crossed his mind in fact I don't really I can't really remember having a conversation with him maybe get him on here and ask Scoey that you know and find out exactly what Scoey's feelings on him were but George felt he could let him go and again you can't criticise his recruitment uh, did it change the feeling within the dressing room no, not really. I don't think so. I think you can't change the feeling in the dressing room if you finish fifth in the Premier League and you're selfishly getting yourself ready for the next season. I was full. I was more conscious of the second season, knowing this second season eight type thing. I was more conscious that we had to be even better. Do you know? I'm more conscious that opposition managers and players knew you better, and they're not daft. So they're going to set up differently. They're going to maybe play differently against you. So you got to give them credit too. They maybe worked as out. 
They maybe come up with solutions, uh, or maybe they just, you know, went a different plan to, to counteract our strengths. So, and that's the game. You know, you, you, you're, you're looking at your strengths against their weaknesses. So maybe they worked us out a little bit better. For fans, it was brilliant. And like you say, you four and a half million here, a European Cup winner there and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, one name that did come up a lot during the summer was was the name of the agent, Jonathan Barnett, who, you know, I think he, he represented uh, a number of our young players. Yeah. You know, what, what sort of influence would, would have he had on, on the younger players? Well, he would have had a... I, Jonathan, I know Jonathan Barnett, and Jonathan Barnett would have had a very positive influence on them. And he had a working relationship again with George and a working relationship with a German. So if you're, if you're, and I find this out, if you're working with, with agents who get you good players, you go back to them. You know, it's that rocket sense. If they've got good players, and you have, a, and you have a relationship, and you build up in those, and you build those relationships over many years, then that that agent may be able to influence the player to come to your club rather than go to another club. So Jonathan Barnett had a reputation within the club because he represented all the, all the best young players. So that's not his fault. At the end of the day, he's just doing his job. And if George had a relationship with him to try and influence the players, then everyone's a winner in that. Let's deal with the UEFA Cup first. Um, The club's first return to Europe since 1982. And so for some of those that were young and and missed the the Bobby Robson era, it was something they were really looking forward to in a really, really special time. You played in five of the six games against Moscow, Helsingborg and, and Milan away. You missed... You missed into Milan at home. What are your memories of UEFA Cup football that season? It had eluded me through my career. So it was one tick box, thank you very much. And I played in Europe. I was a Northern Ireland international. I don't know how many caps I had at the time. So uh, it was just another wonderful experience. And again, given my experience as an international, I, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So it was another uh, opportunity to go and play against the best club players uh, of uh, in different countries, and uh, and a wonderful opportunity for us to really put a stamp down and a, put a you know a marker down and follow on the f- famous footsteps of Sir Bobby and and that great great side. So uh, so for everybody else, it was an opportunity to travel. For husbands, it was to get away from waves for a couple of days, <laughs> get a, a fantastic experience. So no, there were there were great games, great occasions, and again the players matched the challenge and stood up to it. So the fans will want to know, you know, you're in the San Siro, there's, there's nine, 10,000 Ipswich Town fans there, you know, what was it, what was it like, you know, to, to hear all of the, the Town fans, you know, we won it up after the first leg, what, you know, what was it like in, the, in that stadium? Phenomenal. You talk about walking into stadiums and, and, you know, the positive effect they can have on you, it reeked of history, it just reeked of history, it reeked of quality. It reeked of uh, nostalgia. It was the great, great players, you know, and you're, and you're walking into that environment. You're getting changed. Listen, I was a surprise. I was a surprise inclusion. I went really on the back of not having trained uh, particularly. Uh, and we had a training session the night before in the San Siro. And it was everything, all my dreams come to. It was everything I ever imagined it would be. And I had a particularly good night so i think that it kind of way influenced george uh and brian hamilton the next morning i think because they felt that i had you know i wasn't i actually wasn't that convinced uh that i was ready for it but uh but i think they wanted experience on the night too so i kind of way played my way into that 
into their thinking and played my way into the team. And I started brightly and then faded because I was nowhere near the levels, uh, fitness-wise. So whilst it was a, a brutally selfish, uh, lovely, well-done gym, it was kind of way, when I looked at it, I wasn't, I wasn't bang at it. I wasn't ready. I wasn't 100%. But again, the manager made the decision. I accepted it. Away I went. And, uh, and then we listened again, quality. You look at Vieira, you look at Ronaldo. It was, it was just an incredible. Listen, our fans again were just unbelievable. Like the noise again, you know, it's, it's again the hers in the back end act job and very complimentary from Italians, Italian players, you know, and, and coaching staff after the game, I, I'm led to believe. So listen, Mike, it was mixed with a huge disappointment, uh, personal disappointment. It was a huge satisfaction. You can't walk away from there and not be satisfied or, you know, proud of not only how your club's been represented that night, but you're dealing with, you know, the great players of the of the modern era, you know, and, and you, you hold your hands up and you accept that. Like Zanetti was a big, big uh a big influence on me. I loved Zanetti. I managed to grab a shirt uh after the game. So and I didn't do that on a regular basis, to be honest with you. Not because I just not because it was an ego thing, it was just I wanted to get off the pitch. Do you know what I mean? I was probably sulking. Uh, so, so uh, no, it was tremendous. I loved every every experience you get in football. You've got to enjoy. So, we certainly enjoyed that, Nick. Yeah, fantastic memories. Let's go back to the the Premier League campaign, which is is a bit of a disaster. We have victory against Derby in our in our second game, where Fanidi George is outstanding and probably gets a nine or ten out of ten in the in the paper. Um, we then go on a run of fifteen games without a win. Have you ever known a, a spell like that in your career, and what what contribute contributed to that awful sequence? Yeah, to, to be honest with you, I probably did. Uh, probably did. It's happened maybe at some stage, but I can't recall. But yeah, that was difficult. It was a difficult period because perhaps there was a, a lot of people were losing belief in how we, you know, played uh, the way we set up. Uh, I think there was a lot of self doubt. Uh, was creeping in. Uh, perhaps there was a you know a lack of confidence within the group. I'm sure there was. Uh, I'm sure I tried to influence it in a positive way. Uh, but listen, it's it's like when you're going through that spell. I always been told like coach players when you're winning, when they're losing, get them out because you don't want that neg- negativity clouding them. Players are aware of social media. They were aware of papers. They were aware of TV. They're aware of the run. You know, and psychologically, that can have a massive impact. And again, it's it's a character thing. It's how you adapt to that. If you allow that to dictate to you and let negativity creep in, then you're on a loser. So that run of games would have had a detrimental effect. But you had to regroup. You had to gather, you know, a little bit more security and a, and a bit more belief and work hard. Constantly keep working hard. Not not picking on each other putting demands on each other by all means, but just regrouping and saying, right, we're a good say, we prove we're a good say, let's get back to basics. Team spirit was still high during that period? Yeah, but it can't be fractious. Do you know, at the end of the day, we're grown men, and the tempers may fray at times, part and parcel of the game, you get on with it. You know, at the end of the day, people are going to spit their dummies out. Those who aren't in the team think they're in the team. Those who are in the team may be looking over their shoulder and feeling, as I say, a little bit more conscious of their performance. At that stage... Everything was being scrutinised. So Sky was scrutinising you. Prozone was scrutinising you. People were looking at you more. Oh, well, you didn't cover this. You covered this. You're not landing on the ball as much. You know, uh, why aren't you getting as many touches? You know, things like that. 
I think the other thing is like recognizing, as I say, the strengths of the opposition. Opposition worked you out, so we had to be better. We had to do better. We had to work harder. So, as I said, you when confidence is flowing, decision making simpler. When confidence isn't, to say you're taking a second longer <clears throat> or a split second longer to make them decisions. Where when you're flowing, everything's natural. So probably that was creeping in too. So you acknowledge that, but then you have to regroup, as I say, and you have to come back. Do you, do you think it would have been better if we'd have finished 17th the season before instead of 5th, where we suddenly, you know, our, our heads were above the parapet and people were, were taking us serious? No, because the game doesn't dictate that. you got to play to the game and you got to play. Uh, you play and you, and you play to those conditions and you finish up where you deserve to finish up. Our quality of play, we deserve to finish 5th. Was that, you know... Uh, you know, was that expected? No. But you can't deny that we didn't play well and you could not deny that we didn't deserve to finish fifth. What you can't then dispute is that we were in a position where if you're losing games, it's because there are certain aspects that you have to always... The variables are always there for the game. You could be unlucky. Yeah, over 15 games, you're either that unlucky? I'd say no. Quality of play, made of depth, opposition, quality of the opposition... You know, you recognise that. And then maybe the whole, you know, work ethic and attitude. You tend, as an, and I only, well, you find that out anyway as a, as a player. But when you become a manager, you look, you're looking for things. You're constantly looking. You're constantly scrutinising. Sometimes it can be overanalyzed. You know, this analysis, uh, paralysis by analysis. So I think if George had enough experience to dictate that, get back to basics. Let's get back together. Let's keep a strong core unit. And then let's start winning games of football again. Well, clearly that worked because after that run of no wins in 15, we then go on a crazy sequence of seven wins in eight and we climbed to 12th in the table and recent signing Marcus Bent has scored six in six. How does a run like this come about from bottom of the, the league? And did you then think when you were in 12th, actually relegation isn't going to be an issue this season? I think Marcus was, a, again, a, a really good addition. He had experience and he was threat, he had pace and he was a good finisher. So him coming in, give everybody a lift. Uh, I think that, no, I did certainly didn't get carried away. I just wanted to maintain Premier League status. I just thought, let's get back now. Let's get this season done and dust it. If we finish there, fabulous. Relegation to always, with, again, my background, you know, relegation is always a distinct possibility. I think the highest I finished with Southampton was 10th. The rest was scraping in and just finishing above it. Get the 17th or get, you know, don't, just stay in the league. So for me, it was maintaining Premier League status. Don't get carried away from last year because we're dealing in the here and now. And the here and now is, what have we done in the past six games that have allowed us to win games? Let's stick to that. And then let's see where we are at the end of this season. So that, that big winning runs, that, that big winning sequence um, comes to a shuddering halt when we, we lose 6-0 at home to, to Liverpool. Um, from the outside, it looks like the, the, uh, it's confidence to destroy and uh, defeat for us as it starts a run of, of 10 without a win. Is it possible for a single game to set up a losing run? And, and what are your memories of that, that key day? I remember, I remember how well they played. I remember, again, the quality of the opposition. You know, it was Owen and Heskey, Gerard, and you know, Didi Haman. And, you know, we're talking about top, top, say. So on any given day, Liverpool could have done that to anyone. So, again, it, it happened to us. I was on the bench. And I remember, I remember George turning around to me 
and he's saying to me, warm up. And I remember saying, what for? We're 5-0 down. Oh, <laughs> you know, George, no, there's no hat trick in me today. Definitely not. I'll not see the ball. So Brian Hamilton's looking around and went, warm up. I went, what for? You know, what for? You know, you know, you know I think it was 25 minutes ago. And I think George had a little giggle. He went, Jim, warm up. I went, George, I'm ready. If you want to throw me on, throw me on. But nah, I'm not warming up. You know, I'll, you know what am I warming up for? You know, they're 5-0 up. You know, so he went, and again, I did have a giggle. I'm sure he wanted to kill me. But he, he, he so I, I came on. I missed, a, I missed a, a, an absolutely glaring chance. Balls come across, and I've hit it, and I came away, shanked it, and there was a few, uh, you know, and I'm like, oh, goodness, here we go. Then I remember Meg alone speaking to me, and I was saying about Gerard, and he went, Jim, another level, just another level. And I went, oh, my goodness, I've, I've sat and watched, uh, you know, and, and just in awe. So we lose 6-0. Again, one-off, for me, one-off games happens. It happens. Like, for example, we beat, we beat Barnsley in the championship that year. We've got opponent and play Barnsley in the final. We beat them six. We beat them six, and they yeah. went on this incredible. And they end up losing narrowly in a playoff final at Wembley. It comes down to the individual. If you allow that to affect you, it's down to the individual. So yeah. whilst it may have appeared that way to the fans, certainly not to me. Certainly it was. They're good. They're very good. They're they're an incredibly good side with incredibly good players. That can happen. Now get over it quickly. Get over it because we've got to go now. So that Liverpool had a player on their bench which was of the same calibre as yours, which was Nicholas Anelka. I remember him him coming on as well. So they had a they had a fantastic team. How, obviously, you you're a Liverpool fan, and you, you started with you know as an apprentice at Liverpool. How how did it feel when you were in these games, you know, playing against Liverpool? Prayed, absolute prayed. Uh, Anfield away the year before, prayed when we win the game, and huge respect. You know, for everything the club stands for. I owe my career to the club. And I did a lot of work prior to leave uh, Northern Ireland to go to, to go to Liverpool. But the foundations, the mentality was only uh, established whilst I was there. And I owe them, I owe, the, I owe Ronnie Moran, Roy Evans, Kenny Dalglish, Phil Thompson, the players of, of that era, you know, the fantastic players. A huge debt of gratitude. I never forgot uh, my upbringing in the game. It was every day, relentless every day. Be better than you were the day before. Go out there and train like it's your last day training. And that's, again, that that attitude and application and enthusiasm for the game was established there. Now, it didn't, ta- didn't take a lot to convince me because the kind of way I was brought up in that. But certainly, when I played against them, and it was just immense pride. Immense pride. And it wasn't a vindication of, you know, me... Uh, playing at that level. It was just, you know, knowing that I had played a part in the club. I'd represented the club. Uh, I was, you know, captain in the reserves. I had, you know, I was there through difficult periods. I was there at Hillsborough. You know, I'd lived through that with the players and with the club and the supporters. So I, I have huge respect, huge respect for the club. I'd travel anywhere to go and watch them play too. So, you know, I'm a two sons of the same. So we're, we're you know, I'm indebted to the club. But... When you put on a different strip, I remember scoring scored a penalty and giving it large uh, for Ipswich. I remember scoring for Southampton and going ballistic. I'm not a big believer in all, you know, how can you not celebrate a goal? It's the hardest thing in football to do. So why are you not celebrating? You've got to go delirious. Okay, you can, you know, you talk about respect after the game. But when you're in the game and you score a goal, please, 
please delirium sets in please you know none of that business uh so yeah so it was it was it was wonderful going to all the premier league grounds was wonderful you know and and you guys experienced that too so you have you put your emotions and you think about your emotions when you walk into the ground well you can only imagine my emotions walking from the tunnel onto the pitch and putting you through sheer hell for 90 minutes do you know what i mean so so you know we're in the game we we can have to control our emotions and hopefully dictate what way it's going to go. Your supporters are acting off everything. You are more nuts than we are. <laughs> True. Um, you end the season on the sidelines and you don't feature in the in the last seven games, which sees a, another five defeats and then the relegation is confirmed and another hammering at the hands of Liverpool. Yeah. How, how do you sum up this bizarre season and how long term was the damage of the mistakes made by the club in 2001-02? Uh, well, the long-term effects has, has been proven, and that's we can't get away from that. Uh, it was a case that for me, it was a case of it shouldn't have happened. What, what, what could we? What should we have done better? It should never have happened. You can't put yourself in that position, right, and not maintain Premier League status. And that's and 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 that's my view on it. It wasn't had nothing to do with the fact that I was wasn't in the team. I was watching the team. I was desperate for us to win desperate for us to stay in the league but there were there were i don't know if there were fundamental errors i don't you know obviously i was a part of it i was listening i was in involved in sessions i wasn't even traveling at times to the games which was hugely disappointed from my point of view you know i wanted to have a positive effect i was trying to have a positive effect with the lads uh, especially those younger lads or those lads with less experience to try and keep them focused and motivated but when it creeps in it's like anything momentum Momentum going that way is superb. It's like that rolling rock thing. Momentum going that way is horrendous. No matter what you do, no matter what you try and do, no matter how much you're trying to influence, sometimes it just doesn't happen. And it was a huge, huge disappointment. It's probably the most disappointing thing in my whole career. To have that on your CV, relegation, is hugely disappointing. And I think it could have been avoided. In May 2002, George Burley is quoted in an article, and I, w- I won't read all of it, but I, th- I think he says that you wanted first-team football. He couldn't guarantee you first-team football and that you and him had had a chat, and he told him that he would consider, he'd consider giving you a free transfer at some point. You've turned about 33 at this point. What were your options, and, and why couldn't George Burley guarantee you first-team football at Portman Road? Well, that was his. He followed me. I remember it was very disappointing, I have to be honest, given the contribution. Uh, it was after, I think it, the, the season, uh, there was one or two games to go. No, I think the season had been completed and I was getting ready or there was last game or something like that. So it wasn't long before the season had ended or the season had just ended. And he followed me into the kit room and he just said, right, listen, you can go on a free, basically. And I got a year left on my contract. And when he said it to me, uh, I went inwardly. I went. I'm not going anywhere. Nah, I'll not be going anywhere. Uh, but that's up to you. I went. That's fine. Thank you. I'll consider my options. And that came away. And for George and I, that was strange because we had. I would like to think we had so much mutual respect for one another, for his contribution to my game and my contribution to him uh, and the football club. You know, we, as I said, we didn't we didn't have conversations a lot. But there was a great deal of respect. So, listen, he had the build and he wanted the build. And it was a rebuilding at 33. Am I service to requirements? Probably. But was I going to go? No, I wasn't going. 
you know, so regardless of who was coming into me, no, I wanted to come back. And again, it was probably the stubbornness in me. Uh, I'll, I'll show you, you know, and it wasn't him. I wanted to show others. I had a disappointing season, there's no doubt. Uh, I struggled uh, fitness-wise. I wasn't fully fit. No excuse. Uh, I was left out. We got relegated. Then I wanted to be play a part of us getting, getting us back in. Lo and behold, I didn't really know what to expect. But I came back pre-season flying fit again, ready for ready to embrace the new season. At the tail end of the season, ITV Digital uh, went bust and had quite a major impact on Ipswich Town's finances, along with the, the other teams. Uh, Derby and Leicester got relegated with us that season, and I think all three teams eventually went into administration. Um, that led to a, a, a dramatic dismantling of the team. Uh, Bramble and Stewart first to go. Jamie Clapham, Herman's gone. Darren Ambrose follows during the season. How is this type of situation explained to you as players you know what conversations are being had with agents and how hard is it to focus on your football when there's chaos all around you yeah you can't you can't dismiss it and turn around and say it didn't have a fact because it did but what the club tried to do they tried to communicate that message to us you know david and george tried to communicate that well they didn't try to communicate that to us they told us you know not the full details but obviously uh gave us as much as we needed to know and at the end of the day, personal choices have to come into place. Players are brutally selfish, you know, in terms of that. If there's an opportunity to go and play or maybe go back into the Premier League, they're going to take that and you can't blame them for that. Um, but they did their very best to explain that. They were very upfront. They were very honest. And, uh, and, and, and there was a huge disappointment from them having to do that. Of course it was because both men were, you know, responsible, played huge roles in putting the club into the Premier Club and in into the Premier League, so this was hugely disappointing for both of them. I'm sure both of them took this very personally, and uh, and as a result, players left. It was a kind of regrouping. We had, we still had to take care of business. You know, as a football, you still got to turn up, you still got to train, you still got to apply yourself. We still had to try and win football matches. Simple as that. You know, we you know there was a lot of bravado as well come the start of that season about what we were going to do and what we were going to do. I'd rather have stayed away from that and gone low key. But that wasn't my job. My job was to try and get myself personally ready for the, the upcoming challenge. And certainly I was ready for it. So having been told that you could go on a free in, in May, you then feature in seven of the first eight league games at the start of 2002-03 in a new look side, which features Darren Bent and, and Darren Ambrose. Now, you had the experience to get out of the second tier. How were you personally and the, and the club fixed for a, a 46th league game season? I was ready, so so there was no, you know, it was business as usual for me. Business as usual. We had two outstanding young players, two outstanding young players that were going to really take us, you know, on. Uh, they were going to definitely add quality. They had enthusiasm. They had the, you know, the passion of youth. They invigorated the group. They were two legly characters. Loved them to death uh, because I knew they could deliver. Uh, I knew they could produce. They were still learning the game. So they were two welcome additions. I knew that we still had the core to challenge. I knew it was going to be difficult. Of course, it is getting out of the championships the hardest flipping thing in football. So I knew that we we mentally we were equipped. We had a, a you know a, a nice balance of experience too. So ready for it again. Ready for it. At the end of the day, it's a challenge. You have to meet head on. You got to be clever and smart. Of course you do. But you embrace the challenge. You can't shy away from it. You got to be as I say. Let it motivate, motivate you rather than intimidate you. So again, I was motivated. 
So the first two games against Walsall and Leicester, we win fairly easy. But then it's no wins in six um, and a home defeat against Derby turns out to be your last game under under George Burley. In those last games, was there a sense that the old Burley magic had disappeared or, or could you see a way forward going towards the end of the season? Do you know, there, there are different... Taming in football is immense, isn't it? And, and, and I've been lucky enough to benefit from taming and also not so much. I think there were different aspects. And I'm, I'm sure George, somewhere along the line, has talked about this. I felt that Dale, God rest him, uh, was a huge influence on George. I think he missed that personal relationship uh, again I might be talking out of turn I don't know that personally uh, there were things going on obviously administration wasn't helping and there was a lot of pressure huge pressure on the manager huge pressure on the football club to deliver uh, so all this may have taken its toll probably did take its toll I think we went was it Grimsby away we lost as well and that game you felt there was a certain inevitability I was listening to it uh, on the radio, believe it or not, and uh, I, I just felt there's ways of losing football games, and and I found that to my cost at Queen's Park Rangers, for example, we go to Watford away, and you feel as if, and it's not it, players don't maybe see that, but they're kind of way they look as if they're throwing the talent, and it's like a house of cards. Well, certainly that never entered my head as a professional footballer, and I hope it doesn't enter many, you know. Does it enter people's head that this could be, you know, I hope it's his last game or that never entered my head. Shocking if it does, do you know, in my opinion. So, but there was a certain inevitability about it. And and whilst I, my relationship at the end, kind of way wasn't as strong as it was at the beginning with George, a huge amount of respect for George and what he had achieved at the club. So I didn't want him to lose his job. But again, to the outsider, pressure had been building. Huge respect from supporters for what he had done. But again, it's the nature of the beast. It is the nature of the job. It is the survival of the fittest in this game. And the board took the decision to let him go. So how did you find out about his sacking? Do you know what? I can't really recall. I think it was the next day or a couple of days after. I think the chairman had come in. And I think I think Tony, didn't Tony take over the reins for a couple of games? So, uh, so I, can't, I think the chairman delivered it. I think it was less than we, we'd heard anyway because nothing sacred. You know, football clubs are historic about Sibs. They look like Sibs. You probably found out before I did, Sean. So, <laughs> so it kind of got out there and then there was that inevitability. But it was, it was a sad day because a lot of, we owed a lot to George. So I was, you know, and I wasn't, uh, I was disappointed for him, really disappointed for him. As I say, a huge influence on my, on my career. Uh, where where does he rank in the terms of managers that you've, you know, played for to that point in your career? Yeah, George is in my top five. There's no question. I, I, I again, I, it's only when people had asked me and I and I look back and I don't like looking back, right? But when I did look back, I had twelve club managers, uh, ranging from Phil Thompson at the beginning and Kenny uh, to, to a degree to Joe Royal, and. Influences on my was the start was Tomo and Brian Horton, who took a chance on me at Oxford. And then Joe had a major influence on how I retired, if you like, hung up my boots, because that wasn't easy. And, and then there's George. George gave me a fantastic platform to play, an unbelievable platform to go and play, and trusted me. Uh, I had his respect. I had his trust. Uh, I never misplaced that trust or didn't try to. 
Uh, I had a great professional working relationship with him. And, and when you get that with a manager who hands you the reins, uh, then uh, my confidence and, and self-esteem was very high within that group and within the club. So I own that. Uh, but he was a top-class manager, one, because of his consistency and his message and his delivery of sessions every day. And two, because he was very honest. I always found him honest. How, when was the first time that you spoke to George after he, he'd been sacked and how, how did he take it? I think it was the game, didn't he? He took over Derby after, did he? Was that his next club? I think I think it was just actually... Uh, I think he might have sent me a text wishing me all the best when I became manager. Uh, but playing... Uh, I think it was just a mutual how are you, a bit of a smile and a bit of a handshake and away we go. I'm here to beat you. So, uh, and when I do, I'm going to be smiling and shaking your hand. So, and then that's it done. Uh, but... Yeah, I think he came with Derby the next year, didn't he? And uh, and we beat them. I think we beat them uh, at home. Uh, so there was pleasure in that. Uh, but uh, yeah, just fleeting. Not nothing too much. No. So you know that's the nature of the beast. I was a player. He was a manager. He 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 mixed in different circles to me. Well, I think now is probably an apt point to to end this interview. If you think part one, we, we finished with the, the highs of, of Wembley and, you know, part two, like the, the difficult second album, we, we, we talk about relegation and, and, our, and our manager's just been, been sacked. So hopefully we can, we can arrange a time to go from part three and we, we take, you know, from the Joe Royal era to when you start managing the club and stuff like that. But um, for me personally, I think it's, it's been absolutely fantastic. It's another hour of talking. Sean, listen, I've got a wee thing for you too, okay? So just, so part three, I'd love to do part three uh, and get that off my chest because this has been great. This has been, you know, uh, this has been, you know, an opportunity to recall certain events. And I say, I, I'm a very positive person looking that way, but this has given me an opportunity to reflect and that's important too. So thank you for that. You've done a, a fabulous job again. But this is, this, is a, this is the jersey I was supposed to wear and didn't wear, right? So this is, this is the uh, Inter Milan at home. Okay, so that's for any fan. If you want to get it out there, that's for a fan. That's not for you. Okay, so I'm just putting that. But you've got this one. So you've got the uh, Magilton one. Okay, so uh, that's that. And that's the Magilton one. Okay. Wow. So that's for you personally. So thank you for conducting this in a very professional, fantastic way. But that's for a punter. If you want to throw it out there, this is the end of Milan one. I, I never wore it so at home, but I wore the away one. So I've got that one up on the wall. This is the home one. So that there has never been worn. Yeah, definitely never been worn. Uh, so to any punter who wants it, you can do whatever you have to do. If they want it signed, great, I'll sign it. If they don't, they want to keep it like that, happy days, whatever way. So we'll, we'll arrange uh, um, uh, something to, to, to raffle off. the Just the one shirt. You said the other one was for me, didn't you? The other one's definitely <laughs> for you because you've been hammering me and chasing me for so long. It's definitely for you, Sean. Well, I've never, I've never uh, owned a, a player shirt before, so I'm, I'm very honoured and very proud of that. Thank you, Jim. Um, pleasure, absolute pleasure. Look, look forward to speaking to you again on part three. Take care Brilliant. and stay Love safe. You, Sean. Thank you.
It's the promotion running. Everyone is gathered round to watch. The McNuggets share boxes are there offering much needed distraction. Your mate's already been booked for double dipping, but in you swoop to steal the last nuggets and claim all three points. Oh, and there is the Harry Clark fist pump to celebrate. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in at participating restaurant. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.